But we are continuing our journey through the book of the covenant. It's a collection of civil laws given to Israel shortly after God gave them the Ten Commandments. And the purpose of the Book of the Covenant is to give Israel examples of how the Ten Commandments apply to everyday life, to help Israel understand the way God wanted his people to relate to him and each other because God wanted his people to live in a way that reflected his heart and his values. Now, one quick note here. We do have children in the room because of COVID-19. We can't do our children's ministry yet. And because of that, I've been doing my best to keep things as PG as possible as we've worked our way through the Book of the Covenant. Hasn't always been easy. Won't be easy today. But however, there's one verse today where there's there's just no way uh, for me to address it in a PG manner. So I'm going to flat out skip over that verse when we get there. If you have any questions about that verse... And I promise you won't. You're welcome to come and talk with me after the service. So jumping back into the text in Exodus 22, verse 16, the topic shifts from what we were talking about last time, which was a case of possible stolen property, to a case of a stolen heart. And it says in verse 16, If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Now we have to remember that there were already cultural practices in place among the Israelites when God gave them the law. It was not a blank slate. They had a culture that they had picked up in Egypt and from earlier in their history. So everything in their culture wasn't invented from scratch. So some of God's laws are amendments or revisions of existing cultural practices. So culturally, here's what you need to know to make sense of these verses. Firstly, the cultural norm and expectation was that a woman would be a virgin until she was married. If she lost her virginity, finding a husband would become significantly more difficult. A betrothal was even more serious than an engagement. And I say that because in our culture, when someone gets engaged now, I'll be honest, I'm, I always want to ask, but you never can. You're like, is this a real engagement? Or is this one of those things where when I check in with you in seven years, you're still going to be engaged? What I really want to say is, is this a real engagement? Or is this a get the woman off your back engagement to buy you some time because you're still not willing to commit? Which is it? No reason for a seven-year engagement. Let me just put it out there. I'll go on the record. You know, you go. That's the word of the Lord right there. <laughs> When someone was betrothed, they were off the market. They were off the market, and so they were to be treated by everyone else as though they were already married. Now, one of the things that would take place during the betrothal was a negotiation between the bride's family and the groom regarding what's called the bride price. Now in Israel, this custom existed because families all lived together and everybody in the family worked. Everybody worked. So if you lost your daughter to marriage, your household would be losing a significant percentage of income. And so to compensate for that loss, your household would negotiate what was called the bride price. Isn't it a mind-blowing thing to think that there was once a time where losing a daughter to marriage meant a loss of income? Today, if you have a daughter who moves out and gets married, most parents are like, what am I going to do with all this disposable income? You suddenly notice that they're going to Mexico every year. What's going on? And I think we need to get back to the biblical model where children worked and they brought home income for the family. Amen? Amen. Amen. And for the purposes of this recording, I'd just like to let the government of Canada know that was a joke. And so <laughs> finally, you need to know. That's good. Laugh on the tape. Ha, 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 ha. Yes, Excellent. Excellent. Finally, you need to know that in this historical context, if a woman lost her virginity outside of marriage, any future husband would not have to pay the bride price. And so knowing all that, here's what these verses are describing. A man seduces a woman who is a virgin. She's not betrothed. He likely seduces her with the promise that they soon will be betrothed. 
but then he wants to split. The scenario is that he wanted the physical benefits of marriage, but without the commitments of marriage. And God's law says, because you took her virginity, you owe her family the bride price. Additionally, you owe her the commitment of marriage. Now, if he's a really bad guy, and I I appreciate this, hopefully we all understand that two mistakes don't make a right. So if someone gets pregnant outside of marriage unintentionally, and the guy's an absolute moron, marrying him too is not going to fix things. It's just going to compound the problem. So this says if the dad looks at him and he says, no, there's no way that you're marrying him. This guy's a total moron. Heck no. He still has to pay the bride price. And the overarching principle here is that God expects sex to take place within the commitment of the marriage relationship. And God, what you should be getting from this law, is that God has strong feelings about men who want the pleasure of sex without the commitment of marriage. From God's perspective, even though there's two people, from God's perspective... It is the man being unjust and taking advantage of the woman, even if she's a willing participant. It's stealing something of significant value that God intended to be exclusive to the marriage relationship. In Genesis 2.24, God famously declared that when a man and woman come together in marriage, it is to be an emotional, spiritual, and physical joining together. God actually uses the term one flesh. He says they become one flesh. They have a united identity in the eyes of the Lord and spiritually. And Jesus reiterated this teaching when he was on the earth. See, this is what our culture doesn't understand is that the Bible doesn't have a low view of sex. The Bible has an infinitely higher view of sex than our culture does. In God's economy, in God's design, it's it's sacred. It has profound meaning, unlike the world that we live in. If you then choose to become one flesh with those who are not your spouse, outside of marriage, the strength of that future bond to one person is going to be diluted. Because the Bible teaches that whether you like it or not, you've bound yourself spiritually to every person that you've come together with physically. And yes, God can heal, and yes, God can restore, but we cannot lie to one another. We cannot lie to our children and tell them there are no consequences no matter what. It'll all just get fixed later on, no problems, because that's simply not true. And this is what Christians need to be teaching their children, that that the first and foremost concern in God's design, it's not even pregnancy, it's not STDs, it's that you are diluting the gift that God wants to give you in marriage in your future. That's a reality. It's not just one night and done. You don't just move on. There, there's a permanent effect that lingers there. And truth be told, we see the devastating effects of this reality. If you don't believe me, just think about this. We see this reality in our society today. People are coming together physically with more people than ever before, with greater ease than before, in greater numbers than ever before. And that sacred act has become so cheapened and so disposable in our culture that people, as a result are having more trouble than ever before finding lasting, long-term relationships. And this, this is what our culture does. We reject God's design and plan. We inevitably experience a disastrous consequence, but we refuse to say maybe there's a connection. Maybe completely throwing out God's design for relationships and sexuality has consequences. No, that's not it. That's not it. Our society has become so diluted because it's diluted the powerful binding agent of sex that God intended exclusively for marriage. And we're reaping the consequences now. In the scenario described by these verses, it's not considered by God to be adultery. And I'm not playing word games here. It's not adultery. I say that because if it was adultery they would both be stoned to death. 
okay? If it was sex with someone other than the person you're betrothed to, you're being stoned to death. If it was sex with someone outside your marriage, you're being stoned to death. God doesn't consider this to be exactly the same thing because in this scenario, neither party is betrothed or married and there is willing participation by both parties. And so the issue here is the defrauding that is taking place as the man acts as though he intends to be committed to the woman in order to get what he wants and then attempts to bail on that commitment. And this is an example of why the Book of the Covenant existed, because there are scenarios that don't fit neatly under the Ten Commandments, and they need some nuance. And, and this is an example of that. If this wasn't here, then they would probably just say, well, let's just stone them to be safe. So, uh, so God puts a little nuance in here in the Book of the Covenant for this type of situation. And so now we move on in, into another category of things. Let's just call it things that you just don't do. There are three more offenses that God considers worthy of the death penalty. And again, our takeaway should be God takes these things really, really seriously. And these three laws in verses 18 through 20, what they did is they anticipated, they foresaw the pagan cultures that Israel would encounter in Canaan in the promised land. And so God wanted to lay down the law from the beginning before they even got there, telling them this is what you need to absolutely stay away from and have nothing to do with when you encounter these pagan peoples in the promised land. He says, firstly, in verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Now, because the surrounding cultures at that time in Canaan and, and the ancient Near East were all practicing a form of paganism that can be traced back to Babylon, all of these different pagan cults were all centered around what's known as some form of the feminine divine. It's a pagan concept that still exists today, and so it's worship around a central female goddess. It's the same goddess in different cultures with different names. So thus, if, if you wanted to dabble in spiritual matters, they didn't really have sorcerers at this time. Because of this pagan belief in the concept of the feminine divine, all of these uh, individual personal ministers of paganism that you could hire would generally be female. It's not like God was saying, uh, kill all the sorceresses. Uh, sorcerers, I'm fine with that. That's not what's going on at all. A sorceress would practice some form of divination to solicit information from spiritual beings, conjuring a spirit, divining with a spirit, claiming to talk with a spirit. You might hire them to help you put a curse on someone or try and control someone. And so God says, have nothing to do with that. And I need to tell you something here. I need to tell you something here. If you've ever said, oh, you know, all that stuff is baloney. Tarot cards, crystal balls, communing with the dead, that's all baloney. I need to tell you something. If God takes the time in his word, in his law, to assign this sort of thing, the death penalty, what does that tell us? It tells us this stuff is real. It's absolutely real. The demonic principalities and powers that are involved in things, that are behind things like the occult, and witchcraft are very real. If it was all hogwash, God wouldn't even take the time to acknowledge it. But he does. And he doesn't just acknowledge it. He doesn't just say it's stupid. He says the death penalty for anyone who gets involved in that stuff. Why? Because it can have very real, devastating consequences on a person's life. Scriptures say don't give the devil even a foothold. Don't let him even get a foot in your life. Don't dabble. Don't make light of having your palm read or tarot cards or astrology or witchcraft or anything like that. This is going to offend someone, but I need to say this. Don't say, oh, it's just part of my ancestry. It's just part of my culture. It doesn't make it any less evil. Just because something is part of our family's traditions or our ethnic group's traditions doesn't automatically make it holy. It's evil people in all of our lineages. So it doesn't matter if you say, oh, it's just a cultural thing. My family's always been Freemasons. Oh, you know, we've, we've always sort of like prayed to these spirits in New Year. It's just, just part of my culture. 
Don't mess with it, God says. Don't mess with it. So would you write this down? Christians are not to be involved in any form of extra-biblical, spiritual, or supernatural activity. Extra-biblical just means outside of what's in the Bible. Christians are not to be involved in any form, any form of that. Then we'll move on to verse 20. (laughs) He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. That's strong language. Now you need to understand this. The Israelites had seen God's glory and power put on full display in, in incredible ways. They had seen the plagues of Egypt. They had lived through the first Passover night. They had seen the Red Sea part and the Egyptian army drown behind them. They had seen God's glory descend and cover Mount Sinai. There was no confusion for them at this time about the reality and power of God. There was nobody saying, yeah, but what proof is there? That mountain right over there, covered in the presence of God, right there. Oh, right. And God had communicated to them clearly now what the deal was that he was offering them. Here's the deal. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's why the Ten Commandments open with God saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And what God is saying here in verse 20 is that if you're going to be part of Israel, the deal is clear and you have to make a choice. And if you then change your mind and forsake the Lord, you forsake Yahweh, the consequence is death. Because you've seen enough. You know what you're doing. You understand the stakes. So make up your mind. But if you choose Yahweh and then switch sides, you're choosing the path that leads to death. And God had told them that too. You can't live among God's people, claim to be one of God's people, claim to belong to God's people, and then worship another God and make that choice consciously. You cannot do that. And there's a real parallel here to a coming future time period when all the world will know who God is. There will be no atheists because God's glory and power will be so blatantly on display. And in that time, the choice will be the same. Turn to Jesus and the path that leads to life or forsake the Lord. Worship the other person claiming to be God and choose the path that leads to death. That's how it's going to be in the time period known as the tribulation, a time in which everyone will be forced to make a choice between the Lord Jesus or the other one claiming to be God. And that choice will be irreversible at that time. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger, the word there is sojourner, nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. God identifies four social groups who are especially vulnerable to exploitation and God says, I am especially concerned about them. They're on my heart in a special way. The refugee or immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. And God says they're especially precious to me. Now, there are some contextual realities that we need to acknowledge because we've talked a lot about this concept over the past few weeks, making sure we understand the historical and cultural context because it matters. We have to remember these laws are being given to Israel. This is how Israel's society was to function. And you were going to, if you were going to choose to live in Israeli society, it meant that you had made the commitment to worship and follow Yahweh and Yahweh alone. In other words, you were a believer. That's the point. You couldn't join the nation of Israel if you weren't a believer choosing to worship Yahweh. 
So when God tells his people to care for a stranger or a sojourner, comparing it to their status in Egypt, he's referring to a person who has joined Israel and has become part of the nation of Israel, a worshiper of Yahweh. Now, this could be for various reasons. They may have just seen the Lord's blessing on them, left everything they had to join them. They may have shown up with nothing. They may have had the foresight to see God is with them. I've got to be a part of them. I'll leave everything I have to join them, like Rahab in the city of Jericho. This may be a person who has escaped and been a slave of another pagan culture and wants to join Israel. But there's a lot of scenarios where these people arrive with nothing. They might not even speak the language, but they've made the choice to be part of the people of God. When God speaks about the widow, the orphan, and the poor in the book of the covenant, he's not talking about those things universally. He's speaking about the believing widow, the orphan of believers, the poor who are believers. Now, don't get worked up and start thinking too far ahead or thinking that I'm implying something that I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm just telling you the truth and giving you the facts about the context of these specific verses in the book of the covenant. And in this context, we're talking about believers in a society of believers. And so the point is, first and foremost, not social justice alone. That's not the point. The point is still that God wants his people to reflect his heart and his values in his society. And God is saying, I care about these four groups of vulnerable people. So if anyone in these four groups ends up among the people of Israel, a worshiper of me, I want my people to care for them in a way that reflects my heart. That's what I expect my people to do because they're part of the family of God. And in God's society, orphans are not supposed to end up on the street fending for themselves, ever. Neither are widows to end up homeless. There's to be a meeting of practical needs in the family of the faith. There's not to be any type of bigotry among God's people toward the immigrant or the refugee who's joined the household of faith. And there's certainly not to be any type of exploitation of their situation. And God's going to address some examples of that in a minute. Now, because God lists these four groups of people in the book of the covenant, it's his law. So that means that for Israel, for the people of God, it was a sin to ignore the plight of anyone in one of these four groups. It was a sin. It was a sin personally for the individual, and it was a sin corporately for the nation of Israel as a society. Because as we've talked about, the covenant Israel was making with God was both individual, I'm making a personal commitment to God, but it was also collective. We as a people are making this commitment to God. And God says, okay, here's what I want you to do with these four groups of vulnerable people. While we're free from the law, the church is still called today more than ever to represent Jesus on the earth. And we're still called to care about issues like this, especially within the church, among each other. Jesus said that the defining mark of his people, the church, was to be the way that we love one another. And I want to suggest to you that means locally among us. It means nationally as we go out to our city, our province, and our country. And it means internationally. It means internationally. Again, I have a quota of offensive things I have to say every week. And so the one that I'll, I'll, I'll just say this week is, is if you're a Christian, I don't know that it's okay to support any other charitable cause as long as there is a believer somewhere in the world who is in poverty and is part of the family of God and needs help. I would really think seriously about that. And some people are going to say, really, really, Jeff, it's more important than cancer? Yes. Yes. Is it really more important than stray dogs, Jeff? Heck yes. Okay? If there are members of the family of God somewhere in the world who are losing their homes and we can help them, heaven forbid that we're like, I can't support that right now because I'm trying to plant trees. Heaven forbid. Heaven forbid that. And so we want to address social evils as much as we can. Yes, anywhere we find them. Yes, but we don't do it because we believe in a social gospel. If you've never heard that term, the social gospel 
is a theology that takes the gospel of Jesus and it redefines it to make it mean good works on behalf of any poor and downtrodden people. And you've probably heard people talk about it where they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's some good things about Christianity, you know, like helping the poor, or people saying that's what Christianity should really be about. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is where sinners who are born dead to sin and we need saving from Jesus. That is the gospel by Jesus, I should say, not from Jesus. We need saving. That's the gospel. And all these social good things we do are to begin among the church because that's how the people of God are to treat each other. And when we impact those who are outside of the church, we do that as an overflow of what God has done for us. Not because that is the gospel, but simply because we want to give Jesus a good reputation with those who don't yet know him. Okay? There is a valid place for pre-evangelism, which is being concerned about the reputation of Jesus in your town and in your city. That's a good thing. It's not the gospel. It's improving the reputation of Jesus and finding ways to express his love to people who may not be aware of it. It's not a substitute for the gospel. Hermeneutics is the study of how we interpret the Bible. And many progressive, modern Christians apply a completely hypocritical hermeneutic to the book of the covenant. And here's what I mean. They take verses like these relating to social justice and they say, oh, these verses are proof that the gospel is social in nature. It's a social justice gospel. And they say, see, the church is doing a terrible job in the world. The church should be feeding the world and solving all of the world's social problems. The church should be lobbying for a more socialist state so that everyone can be taken care of. But if you raise the laws in the book of the covenant that address sexuality, well, those same Christians don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. It's a hypocritical hermeneutic. It's cherry-picking verses that address the things you're passionate about and then ignoring the verses that address the sins you don't want to deal with. And don't cheer too loudly, because the opposite is true as well. You cannot be in favor of God's views in the area of sexuality, but then ignore his views when it comes to social issues. You're doing the exact same thing. That's being just as big of a hypocrite. We're not trying to to bring God over to our political team. We're not trying to bring God over as fuel for our political causes. We're joining God's team. That's what we're doing. And we're seeking to follow his ways in all things and represent him rightly in all things. Speaking still about these these groups of vulnerable people, in verse 25, God says, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. And in this context, I got to tell you, people would not take out loans because they were like, wouldn't it be nice to have a patio for this summer? Uh, Wouldn't it be nice to have a pool? Wouldn't it be nice to upgrade the wagon? That would be good. Get some new rims on there. People wouldn't take loans for that sort of thing. In this culture, there's no banks. And so when someone took a loan, it was because they were facing starvation. That's how desperate it was. They were facing starvation. They had no other recourse. And so what God says is he says, listen, if you give a loan to anyone in that situation, you have to give it debt free. You have to give it debt free. And this is the principle under this. Write this down. God is firmly opposed to anyone profiting from the poverty of another. God is firmly opposed to anyone profiting from the poverty of another. It's completely against it. And I'll just share as a sidebar, you can talk about this in your home groups. Yes, we should do the best we can to build an equitable society, but when we read this stuff, the focus should not be on trying to get Amazon to fairly pay their warehouse workers. By the way, that's never going to happen, okay? That shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be, God would say, among you, among you, you do things differently. If you own a business, you do it differently. If you have employees, you treat them differently. 
because you take your cues from me. So you don't put all your energy into trying to get the world to stop acting like the world. It's not going to work. Make sure that the church is acting like the church. That, that, that's what scripture calls us to do. So he says, if you loan money to anyone, don't you dare think about asking them for interest. And if they give you their coat as collateral, you got to give it back to them every night because they need it to sleep. God says in verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Let me say that one more time for our American friends listening. Nor curse a ruler of your people. That could apply to their current president or their president-to-be. Because if you can't honor the authorities that God has placed in your life, how in the world are you going to honor God as the authority over your life? Got to learn the concept of authority, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. God says, listen, I've called you to give the first of everything to me. He says, don't delay. Why? Because when you're delaying, there's only one reason you're thinking about not doing it. Or you're like, well, well, maybe let's see what the second batch is like, and, and then if that's a little nicer, then I'll give God the first to make sure that I can keep the best part for myself. God says, don't, don't delay. Make up your mind before it even gets here. Why? Because otherwise it'll work about as well as it does with money today. If you say, I'm, I'm going to tithe, maybe. Let me see how the month goes. You will not tithe that month. It will not happen. Let's see how this goes. I know how it's going to go. It's not going to happen. The reference to firstborn sons here is because firstborn sons at this time were to be dedicated to God on the eighth day of their life, and the redemption price was to be paid. If you want to look that up in your own time, the reference is Numbers 18, 15 through 16. At this time in Israel's history, every family's firstborn son would enter the line in that family to become the equivalent of their family's priest. If you were the oldest son in that family, you were to function as your whole family's priest, the representative to God. And by serving in that capacity, their life would be given to God, so to speak. Now, later on in Israel's history, that practice changed when the priesthood was formally established and the priesthood became limited to the tribe of Levi and the sons of Aaron. But that wasn't how it always was. At the beginning, it was to be like this. The oldest son was to be the priest of the family. And we'll talk more later on in this Exodus series about why that changed. Verse 30, likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Again, this concept of the tithe, that God gets the first portion. Verse 31, and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. And so spiritually here, the concept is that because God is life, Everything ritualistically that was related to death was to be considered unclean. You touch a dead body, you become unclean and need to go through a ritual purification because God represents life, not death. So anything related to death would make you unclean. Practically, we know that dead animals who have not been intentionally killed for food and have been left out in the open for a while are going to be riddled with diseases. And so God gave Israel this practical command for health reasons. He says, listen, you're driving down the road. You see a raccoon that's been run over. You need to not be thinking, sweet, the Lord's provided dinner. Don't do that. Just, just leave it alone. The point is that partaking, taking things in that reek of death can also lead to you reeking of death. And that would be a good principle for us to remember when it comes to the things that we feed on. And I don't mean food, even though it could apply to that too. I mean especially the things that we consume in the name of entertainment. Man, if it reeks of death, if it reeks of evil and wickedness, it's going to affect us if we take it in. The same way that it would affect us if we pulled over and started chowing down on that roadkill. Oh, this doesn't affect me. I have an amazing digestive system. I'm immune to this. Are you? Are you? I've built up a tolerance. No, it's not good. We should think carefully 
about the things that we consume because they affect us internally. Now, as we continue into chapter 23, I just want to make us aware of a logical principle. It's going to go through this and then into the final teaching in the book of the covenant. And it's very simple. If God is is perfect, then he doesn't change. Do you know that's the reason that God doesn't change? He's, He's perfect. He's been right from the very beginning, even though he has no beginning. He doesn't need to change. You can't improve on perfection. So if God is perfect, then he doesn't change. But if God did change, and his changes were based upon changes that were happening in our culture, then he wouldn't really be God, would he? Because he'd be taking his cues from us. He'd be looking down at us saying like, how do I need to change to keep up with these guys? And if God changed based upon our views and values, and if God and his values always perfectly lined up with the evolving views and values of our society, wouldn't it be rational to conclude that God is simply a projection of our own consciousness? We're simply inventing a God and projecting our own values onto him and then saying, well, well, God believes these things, so, so I can believe them too. We're creating a God who has the exact values we want him to have, and then we're using that God as a justification for our lifestyle. Here's the reality. God is perfect, so he doesn't change. Here's what else we know. Societies and cultures do change. Therefore, logically, God and his values will not always line up with society. You need to understand this as a Christian. You need to understand this when people say things like, we need an updated version of Christianity. We need a more tolerant version of Christianity, a more more compassionate version, a version of Christianity that works in 2020. The assumption there is that our culture and our society is better than God. We've advanced further than God, so God should be taking his cues from us rather than recognizing the obvious. Oh, man, we're getting a long way from God. We're getting a long way from perfect. So write write this down. If God is truly God, then he is perfect. And if God is perfect, he will never need to change. Our society's values change, Therefore, if God is truly God, his values will not always align with our society's values. They won't. Get used to it. Haven't really lined up for 2,000 years. Probably not going to start happening anytime soon. Verse 1 in chapter 23, God says, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. And God is speaking specifically here in the context of justice. He's saying you're not to lie, distort, or withhold the truth in a manner that causes another person to experience injustice. Don't play games with the truth. Don't fabricate the truth. Don't withhold the truth or part of the truth. Don't offer a partial truth. When it comes to justice, God says the issue is to be justice. Not finding ways to work the system so that you're not doing anything wrong legally. God says the issue is justice in the eyes of God. And Christians, believers, worshipers of Yahweh are never to participate in creating injustice for another person. Ever. And now here's a whole sermon. A whole sermon in less than one verse. Underline this in your Bibles. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. You know, just this week, I was reading about a phenomenon known as astroturfing. And I know some of you are like, Jeff, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's been around a really long time. It's kind of like real grass, but it's fake grass. I'm I'm not not talking about that. It's a psychological strategy that's known as astroturfing. 
We, we, we all know what normal astroturf is. But in this psychological context, astroturfing refers to an informational campaign that is designed to convince the general public that a grassroots movement exists around an issue. And if you don't know what a grassroots movement is, it's when momentum builds around a viewpoint or an issue among everyday common people like you and I. Signing petitions is a classic tactic of grassroots movements, as are public protests, demonstrations, sharing things on social media. And so astroturfing is when a group of people want to make the general public believe that there's a grassroots movement happening around an issue when there really isn't, when there really isn't. And they will accomplish this using media. Newspapers back in the day, TV, social media today, news networks, etc. And do you know why? Do you know why people try to use this astroturfing approach? It's because of another psychological phenomenon known as the bandwagon effect. It's this truth about human nature. Because of our inherent desire for social acceptance we are naturally drawn to the view that is held by the majority. We just naturally are. We naturally want to hop on the bandwagon of whatever everybody else is doing and whatever everybody else is thinking because we want social acceptance. We crave it, generally. It's not natural to swim against the flow. So how do you get the general public to, to swim in the direction that you want them to swim? What you have to do is make them believe that the flow is moving in a certain direction and everybody else is moving with the flow and generally people will begin to move with the flow. The truth is, if all the other lemmings are running off a cliff and you're a lemming, your natural instinct is, I got to see what this running off a cliff thing's all about. I mean, everybody's doing it. But God says, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. You, you follow me. You know, I remember sitting outside Starbucks a long time ago. We're talking way back in 2018, 2017. Long, long time ago. I know it's hard to remember, but, but I, I was with a group of my friends from, from the CrossFit gym I was going to at the time. None of them are believers. And there was this video that we were talking about that had gone viral that week. And in that video, there was this 11-year-old transgender biological boy speaking about the issue of transgenderism. And he's advocating for it. And he's saying things in this video like, well, up until recently, gender was decided just based upon your biological organs. How creepy is that? And this, this video was circulating around, had gone viral, and this whole group of friends that I was with all agreed, all of them, with no sense of, of humor or anything, I think, I think this child needs psychological help. And I should also mention that, that way, way, way back in, at this time, way, way back, so far back in time, transgenderism was actually classified. And I'm not picking on anybody, I'm giving you a fact. It was classified at that time as a mental health disorder by the World Health Organization. And, but even at that time, I, I could see the writing on the wall. I, I knew where our culture was going, and I could perceive what was going on. And, and I said to the group, I said, guys, I know this seems like a black and white issue to you. Because all of them were like, this is crazy. Uh, you know, this is crazy. Somebody needs to set this boy straight. I feel bad for him that, that this is how he sees it. This is crazy, this, this idea. And I said, guys, I, I know this seems like a black and white issue to you right now, but you watch. I would bet money here that everybody will have a different view in 18 months. This gives you an idea of how much fun I am at parties. And, uh, and, and you know what? 18 months later, they all did. They all had a different view. Now, now, how in the world did that happen? How in the world did people go from, no, no, Jeff, I'm never going to believe that people other than females can have babies. I, I'm not going to believe that you can change your gender with willpower. 
I'm never going to believe that, Jeff. How did they go from that to, yeah, I think we need to pass some laws to stop people from being bigots and expressing the view that we were expressing 18 months ago, that almost everyone believed. 99% of the population, I'm sure it was that. How, how did it change so quickly? Astroturfing. You see, an information campaign was waged, whether we realize it or not, that made everybody believe there's a grassroots movement around this issue. The world is changing. Everybody's changing their view on this. And so if you don't want to be labeled a bigot, if you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, this is where culture's going, everybody needs to get on board with this. And our society said, well, well, if everyone thinks this is what we should believe, then I guess one plus one equals three. God says, it doesn't matter if you're the only one going against the flow. You follow me. And the disciples did. The early church did. The reformers did. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did in Nazi Germany. And right now, as we're meeting, there are believers still doing this, going against the flow to their deaths in the name of Jesus because they refuse to follow a crowd to do evil. I don't care what everybody else is doing. God's word to Israel was, if you're going to be my people, then you're going to be my people. And you need to know that being my people means that you will regularly find yourself living in a way that is very different to everyone else around you. And that's why the reality is following Jesus is the most countercultural way to live. Isn't it hilarious, the marketing you see for be, be a rebel, be countercultural, just like everybody else. And you're like... I mean, if everybody else is, then is it really countercultural? Following Jesus is the most radical way that you can actually rebel against society. Fixing your eyes on Jesus is the most effective way to disconnect from society and all the illusions that are marketed to you. You know, conspiracy theorists say, you got, you got to unplug from the matrix, man. Here's the reality. You, you can't even perceive reality until Jesus and his spirit open your eyes to reality. You are on the inside looking out until Jesus comes into your life and shows you reality and takes the blindfold off. We belong to Jesus. We serve Jesus no matter what everybody else is doing. And I just want to say a special word to parents. Parents, you be strong. You be strong in the Lord on this. Do not Take your parenting cues from the world. You take them from the Lord. I don't care what everybody else is doing. Your kids don't belong to them. They belong to Jesus. So would you write this down? Christians follow Jesus, not the crowd. Not the crowd. Christians follow Jesus, not the crowd. And with that... I'm going to ask you just to pray with me right now. Wherever you are, would you just bow your head and, and close your eyes as the worship team comes up? Jesus, thank you for your word. I, I know that we're hitting on a bunch of different things tonight because the law in your word this evening hits on a bunch of different areas in life. Uh, but Lord, we want to honor you in all of them. We don't want to be hypocrites in the way that we read your word, grabbing a hold of the things that we agree with and ignoring the things that we don't. Jesus, we want to represent you in all things, in all things. And so, Lord, we ask that the power of your word and the power of your spirit would shape our minds and change our thinking so that it would line up with yours. Father, help us to see people the way that you see them. Father, help us not to follow a crowd to do evil, Lord, but help us to shine, as your word says, like stars. Shine like stars in an incredibly dark world. Father, I pray right now for, for anyone here who, if they're honest, would say, say Jeff, but I, I do crave that social acceptance. I crave being accepted. I, 
I want people to like me. I, I want to feel like I belong. Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that in this moment among your people and in your presence, they would feel more like they belong than they ever have in their life before. Because, Father, there, there is no home that the world has to offer like the home of your presence. And so I pray for anyone who is struggling with the pull of the world that you would wrap your arms around them right now in Jesus' name and just cause the world to fade away and bring your glory and your greatness and your love and your grace into sharp focus so that there's only you and our eyes are just on you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to our online services. They're updated every Monday afternoon, but you can stream them all week on Facebook, YouTube, and our website at mynewhope.ca slash online. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to mynewhope.ca slash gospel right now. You'll find a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing, so go there right now. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through His Word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website at mynewhope.ca give. And finally, we want to invite you to follow our Facebook page at facebook.com mynewhope.ca for all the latest updates and encouragements throughout the week. We love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.